Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Well, everyone, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Storybox podcast. Today, my friends, I'm delighted to welcome Chloe Cole to the Storybox. Now, I know a lot of you have been asking me to have her on the show and really have to say thank you, not to me, but to her for actually agreeing to be on my show today. And I'm very much looking forward to unboxing her incredible story and the amazing work that she is doing surrounding this entire trans debate that is going on in society at the moment. But I'm going to do something right now that I've, I've been starting to do more and more regarding the introductions of my show. So instead of me gushing about all the wonderful things that you're doing, Chloe, I thought that it would be better if you gushed about yourself, <laughs> about who you are and what you do. So I'm going to spin it on you now. So who are you, Chloe, and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Chloe Cole, and I'm a detransitioner and a former trans-identified kid. And I went through the whole process of transitioning medically and detransitioning all while I was still under the age of 18. I started transitioning socially, meaning that I was cutting my hair shorter and changing the way that I presented myself and my name at the age of 12 before... Less than a year later, I was put onto the path of medical transition, starting with puberty blockers for about a month. And after that, that period, I was put on testosterone as well. And I was on the, I was on the blockers for about a year and the testosterone for about three years. And about two years in when I was still a sophomore in high school, I don't really know what the Australian equivalent is. But I was 15 years old when I underwent a double mastectomy. I had my breasts removed and I only detransitioned about 11 months after that because I realized that one day I wanted to become a mother and I really wanted to embrace my role as a woman. But now a huge part of me as a woman 
and as an aspiring mother was taken from me forever. And if I were to continue going down this path, I wouldn't be able to pursue my goals. And since then I've, um, for about a year now, I've just, I've been speaking out about my experience transitioning as a kid and just talking about why this is never an appropriate intervention for children and why it's dangerous. Well, can I just say first and foremost, welcome to the story box. I'm grateful that you're here. And I want to start with, we'll dive into everything that went on in just a moment, but I wanted to start off with you speaking out and you're talking about uh, your, your own story and you're also part of a lot of these legislative uh, bans that have been going on, which is a great thing, banning transition for yes. minors. And it's come with a, like, a great deal of blowback, has it not? Like, can you explain the level of blowback that you have been receiving? Oh, yeah. I I get a lot of hate for for what I do, just for speaking out about my story. And it's something that I expected from the very beginning because I got a lot of hate from and was ostracized by the transgender community. The moment that I started talking about my transition regret and how I was hardened by transition. Why do you think people are now hating you for detransitioning? Why do you think you are getting a lot of hate from obviously the trans community? I feel like it stems from a mixture of fear and jealousy. The most hate that I had gotten was from older people who had transitioned who weren't yet on hormones or they were barely on it, but felt like it was too late to really reverse all the changes that they, their body has already developed. Yeah. And the narrative in the trans community that is that the younger you do it, the more ideal it is because then your body won't develop as many of the secondary care, secondary sex characteristics that will make you dysphoric and therefore you will be happier in your body. But that narrative doesn't really take into account just how dangerous, how much damage that causes to the body. It's very much a rosy introspective bias in that they, these people look back and they think that, oh, if I just did this when I was younger, things would be so much better. I would be able to actually look like the opposite sex if I just transitioned as a kid when really it's not quite so simple. No. Do you believe that there are such a, there is such a thing as trans kids? Absolutely not. I believe that there are kids out there who are confused and lacking guidance or a community around them. I believe that there are girls and boys out there who have body image issues and, and autism and other underlying issues that may result in them not wanting to be or associate with their own sex. Mm. But there is never such thing as a trans, as a trans child yeah. ever. I totally agree with you on that front. And this whole narrative of we need to protect trans kids and I'm going, what trans kids? Nobody is born being trans. I mean, intersex is a different, different category entirely. And I don't want to go down a, a massive rabbit hole with intersex people, but 
for the vast majority of the population, you're born either male or female. And that's right. it. Like you can't change your biological construct, but yet the whole narrative of you can and we must transition these kids because they feel like they don't belong in their biology. Right. I mean, a lot of trans people use intersex people as sort of a scapegoat. Yeah. Like they say, well, there's these people who are born with ambiguous genitalia or something in between. So that must mean that's a lot of trans people claim to be intersex without having been diagnosed with a condition. And it is a very real condition, but it's very exceedingly rare. Yeah. And the clinical term for it is um, disorders and sexual development. And usually these disorders, almost every single one of them is sex specific. Mm. And people who have these conditions are still either one sex of the or the other. So it really re reinforces why the sex binary is important. Mm. The intersex people are just born, they're born with an extra chromosome, I think. It's like you're either XXY or XYX or something of that specific nature, I believe. So, which is, a, in, like you said, it's a very rare occurrence to actually happen that does indeed happen to some people and but this whole trans narrative of people choosing to identify as that it's not the same thing it's a completely it's really not the same thing because this is a physical condition whereas having gender dysphoria is a psychiatric condition and being transgender is just a way of treating it when you look at gender dysphoria for those people that don't actually know what it really is and what it comes down to, what goes on in the brain, how do you define gender dysphoria? Um, I mean, it has a pretty broad definition um, of being really any sort of discomfort with one's sex, especially with their secondary sex characteristics, say like developed breasts in women or the male or female genitalia or one's body shape. And this often relates to a person's inner sense of identity having to do with their sex. Yeah. These people have a desire to actually become the opposite sex because they are not comfortable with their own. Why do you think- But I don't believe this necessarily means that they have to transition. This, no. These feelings, are often comorbid with other conditions like learning disorders or personality disorders or previous familial or sexual trauma, especially from childhood. This whole idea that people choose to identify as being the opposite sex, even though they may not have actually gone through any puberty blockers, they may not have gone through any hormones, no, no surgery at all, and they still claim to be trans, how do you react to that kind of narrative that is being pushed at the moment? I mean, really none of those things, no matter how many interventions you go under, whatever medications or hormones you take, whatever surgeries you get, whatever parts of your body you, you change, it won't actually make you the opposite sex because 
that's an immutable trait. That's mm-hmm. something that is determined when we are conceived. And you can do your best to become a mimicry of the other sex, but it will never actually come to fruition. That being said, there are a lot of people who use the trans label without really making any, um, any effort to transition at all. And I remember back when I was transitioning, for a few years, there was a debate over whether you had to medically transition or even feel any gender dysphoria mm. in order to be trans. But then it really negates the point of transitioning. Because what is there? This is a treatment for a condition that you don't have. Mm. And then they just create this entire new narrative of gender. And then they right. say that gender is now more important than biological sex. And they deny biological sex as being in existence and actual of relevance and real importance to society. And everyone else in society is living like fully within their biological construct and they're happy with it. And they're looking at a small minority of people that may not be happy with it for whatever reason. We have spoken about it's a psychological mental health disorder that is going on. So I guess my my main question to you is why why do you think it is becoming such a massive cultural issue today, especially amongst politicians, the media, and a lot of activists now are coming out and even uh, celebrities too. Like, why is it such this massive push to transition kids to everything else? I'm so sorry. You, that whole part just cut out for me. Oh, sorry. I um, some connection <laughs> issues. No, it's okay. Um, so I guess my, my main question to you is why do you think that there is this massive push at the moment amongst politicians, amongst um, the media, amongst so many people to transition kids first and then just try and make this at the forefront of society because there's a small minority group that is now at the forefront of society at the moment. So why do you think there is this massive push? Well, there is a big monetary incentive to push this younger and younger because these democratic politicians are being paid to promote this by the pharmaceutical and medical industries. And the younger you transition a patient, the more likely they're guaranteed to be a patient for life. I mean, you start them on puberty lockers as young as possible and then put put them on hormones. And then you go to the surgeries. And oftentimes, the younger you start these puberty blockers, the less tissue they'll have that they'll need in order to have a surgical sex reassignment. Mm-hmm. And so there will be complications upon complications with all these procedures. And it often makes it so that these patients will, will need more and more medical interventions to treat these. And especially until the later stages of being on hormones and after having any sort of bottom surgeries, at least the ones that remove your gonads, your body won't be able to produce these hormones in the amount that you need anymore. 
And so you'll have to be taking the hormones for the rest of your life. And do these patients at all get told by the doctors in your experience about what is involved with these surgeries? Or any of the risks? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was given on all the consent forms and in the papers that I had to sign for these um, a list of side effects, but they weren't completely comprehensive. Many of the side effects listed were vague. Um, in the consultations that I had for testosterone, my endocrinologist and I discussed some of these complications, but they were in very vague terms. Like she asked me if I knew that I would experience vaginal atrophy, which to me was just the thinning of the lining of tissue in there. And it would cause maybe a little bit of discomfort, maybe some pain, maybe, I mean, down the, down the, down the line, I could just treat it with a topical estrogen treatment. And I thought it would be fine. And eventually I did do that after about a year of being on testosterone, but I wasn't told that this atrophy actually affected more than just that one organ in the reproductive system. In fact, it would affect my, the other organs, such as my uterus and my cervix, and even just organs in the pelvic area outside of the reproductive system. I actually started to experience issues with my urinary tract. And I, beca I became prone to getting UTIs. Um, sometimes it would even get to the point that I would feel discomfort and start, I would, I would get blood in my urine and sometimes even bits of tissue. And I was also told that I may find it difficult to conceive children after being on testosterone for some time. And I was 13 when I was going to these appointments. And when I started on it, I was a kid myself. So it's kind of unreasonable to expect me as a child to be able to make decisions around my own reproductive health, especially because I didn't really have very comprehensive sex ed. And I didn't know yet what things like ovulation or even what a cervix was. I didn't know what the fallopian tubes were. I only knew that I had a period. I didn't like it. And then after my period, somehow I would be able to get pregnant. I didn't know that there are four stages of the menstrual cycle. I didn't know what ovulation was. And yet none of this was explained to me. The adults who knew all this did not help me to. Did you and ask they, them they, at they all? They just allowed me as the patient to make an uninformed decision on my own treatment. Were you able to ask them at all what any of this meant? And did any of them explain at all? I mean, I asked a little bit about the atrophy. Again, it was explained in very vague terms. And when I was told about the, the potential consequences for my fertility, I just thought of it as like, well, I mean, I don't, why would, why would I want to have kids? I don't yeah. want to have kids. 
You're 13. <laughs> and, <laughs> 13 year old wants to have and kids. I, I, yeah. And I also wasn't told about, um, she didn't talk to me about any ways that I could preserve my fertility. And I just assumed that it was because I would be too young. And even if I wasn't able to, to conceive children, I thought that I could just get like a surrogate or something and uh, like take the eggs out of my own body or go through IVF or something if I wanted to have kids down the line, which it's really not that simple. Those procedures come with their own risks and they're very difficult on the body. What was going As through? As was all this. I can honestly imagine because I myself have experienced UTIs on and off for a long period of time and it sucks. So I, I feel for you and the pain that goes with that. But I wanted to ask you when you're getting tissue and you got blood and that's all happening, what's going through your mind initially? Because you're so, you're so young. I mean, when I started getting the UTIs, um, I mean, it was really shameful for me because I was supposed to be a boy, but I still had female anatomy and I was dealing with issues relating to that. And so I was scared to go to, go to the doctor for a while because I didn't want to go to like a, an appointment with a gynecologist because I'm supposed to be a boy. And I brought it up a few times with my, my doctors and their response was pretty slow and they just assumed that it was um, the atrophy and the, the, um, the blood clots and tissue in my urine were just a result of, um, of infections and that if they gave me antibiotics or just flippantly, flippantly diagnosed me with something without ever giving me an exam, it would just be okay. And as I've gone off testosterone, I haven't really experienced it since. When I initially went off, it actually got a lot worse. And that was when I started having tissue appear in my urine. But I haven't been able to get like an actual like culturing of whatever this is or like an actual exam. So I guess I'll just never have any idea what was happening. So this is and all then, that's right. Yeah. And I also, before I started on the topical estrogen treatment, um, about a year or so in, very intermittently and very rarely, I would sometimes get really sharp pains in my uterus, much more painful than any period I ever had. And it would be so bad that I would just drop to the floor and I just wouldn't know what to do with myself. And this went away after I was being put on the, um, after I started using the, uh, the estrogen suppository, but it was just another band-aid on top of the treatment that's really is also a band-aid itself. Did your endocrinologist tell you at all that this wasn't in fact normal, like this stuff shouldn't be happening? Was she aware of that? Yeah. But then because I suggested another treatment because that was, I did my research on this before and this seemed to be 
the way to treat it. She just let me go along with that. And that was pretty much how it was throughout the course of my transition with almost every single doctor that I had. Allowing you to consent to everything. Which brings up the other question as to why can't kids consent to this kind of stuff, in your opinion? Well, for one, I mentally, cognitively, emotionally, socially, I really wasn't very developed. And in a lot of ways, I was actually behind my peers because I have a learning disorder. I was previously diagnosed with ADHD, which I believe to be an erroneous diagnosis. And I think I'm actually on the spectrum, but I was untreated throughout my childhood and my doctors refused to diagnose me with it. And even if I didn't have this condition, any kid, just doesn't have the appropriate psychological developments or experience or knowledge about the world to make a decision on something like this. I mean, this is something that's going to affect you in every single area of your life, down to the way you think, to how you socialize, your relationships, your relationship with your family, your friends, romantically, sexually, the way that your fertility and your sexual function and the overall picture of your health, it's going to affect all that. That's a lot for an adult to take on. So there's no way that any kid should be expected to do the same. I spoke with um, Helen Joyce who wrote Trans When Ideology Meets Reality. And she was telling me she's not even sure an adult can make this kind of decision for themselves because really it just denies all sense of reality and rationale and everything that goes along with that. And they're forcing right. this I mean, onto a child. Right. I mean, a lot of these patients who present with gender dysphoria, both the adults and the children, they're already deluded. Their minds are, are, are already outside of the bounds of reality and they need help. Not these iatrogenic treatments that cause further issues down the line. Oftentimes they're not in a mental state where they can learn what these treatments really mean, how it will really affect them. And there's no to be able to make studies. A decision such as this. No. That will affect their body and their mind. You're right. It will significantly have damaging effects in the long term. They don't have any long-term positive studies to say that this is actually going to be beneficial for a child, let alone an adult, to transition in the way that they want you to transition. But yet, this is the kind of messaging that's going on. I mean, I read this morning how a Texas children's hospital, the youngest patient that they were transition, transitioning surgically, I believe was 11 years old. 
absolutely insane. It really is. And it just makes me wonder, where are the parents in all of this? Allowing that to actually happen to a child. I mean, the level of butchery that goes on with that. I mean, there are a lot of parents out there. They're often referred to as Munchausen's parents because they place their own feelings onto their children mm-hmm. and claim that they have this condition and that they truly are of the opposite sex. And so they should be happier by transitioning and coerce their own children into going down this path. But most of these parents aren't like that. I mean, I think they're the ones, they're being just as hurt by this as their own children because they're being told lies by these doctors who are supposed to help not only their child as a patient, but their families, telling them that there is no other option that if their kid is denied these treatments, it will be a life or death situation. They will die and that the blood will be on the hands of the parents. And that's exactly what they did with my mom and dad. What was the conversation like between your parents and yourself with all this? Um, I actually didn't know about this until very recently when I was having a conversation with them about my appointments. And I believe that this this conversation was had between the doctors and my parents without me. So I didn't really have a say in any of this, but this happened after I started telling my parents that I really wanted to transition medically because I was just going further and further into into distress as I socially transitioned and people still perceived me as a girl. And I found that really painful and it wasn't enough for me. I wanted to actually be physically more like a boy and I wanted to be perceived as such. And I just kept pushing and pushing until my parents got really concerned and they decided to have an appointment with my doctors to ask them questions, to voice their concerns about why I wanted this so badly, whether there were any other whether there was any other option, why I just couldn't wait until I was a legal adult to make these decisions. And they were lied to. What was the doctor saying to your parents? Well, they told them, well, I think it's pretty clear why she's pushing for this. I mean, it's not normal for a, for a kid to be pushing to be the opposite gender. She knows what she wants. And if you force her to go through puberty, if you don't affirm her decision to transition, then it's very possible that she will kill herself. Which wasn't true, by the way. I wasn't suicidal until I started transitioning medically. So you didn't have any... And it kept getting worse the further I went. You didn't have any initial signs of you wanting to end your life prior to any of the surgery any the surgery that you had or any of the hormones nothing no i mean i was in a considerable amount of distress i would say but that was mostly because of school and my social situation 
I felt like I felt like I was very alone. I didn't really have very many friends and I was turning to the internet for that sort of support and connection. Did you find any? And I had some body image? image issues. What was that? Sorry. And I had body image issues. Mm. That was where, where all this largely stemmed from. I didn't feel like I was ever going to be enough as a woman. Where do you think that came from? That thought? Well, while social media gave me a sort of community that I didn't really have with my peers in person, a lot of the stuff that I would see on the internet was, it was content that, especially on Instagram, which is the main platform that I used at the time, much of it was very sexualized, very idealized pictures and videos of women. Many of them were very, they're very beautiful. Many of them were wearing a lot of makeup or in very sexual or compromising poses, poses or clothing. And I just felt like, I mean, I don't look like that. Like, is there something wrong with me? Mm. I was, um, I started puberty fairly early and I think that is a big part of it because I became very conscious of my own body from a very young age and it was really difficult for me to deal with from the, the comments that I would sometimes hear from adults and my own peers and having all these images to compare myself to. And I had a habit of comparing myself to my friends and my family members. And I felt like I just couldn't match up. And I also had always been a bit of a tomboy in a lot of ways. Um, more so as I got older, especially as I hit puberty, I started to like having my hair short and um, being more outdoorsy. And um, I didn't like wearing things like, um, like dresses or skirts anymore. And I wanted to play rough and just sort of be one of the boys. And it was something that I enjoyed, but it was also quite lonely because I felt like I didn't really fit in. And I felt that I neither acted nor looked nor felt feminine enough. And I had a very negative image of what womanhood would be like. I mean, once you hit puberty, then you start to experience your breasts and your body growing in ways that you don't really expect. And you start to have periods every single month for about half of your lifetime. And then it's very possible that you can get pregnant. And that is a very difficult experience. And childbirth especially was scary to me, especially with the way that I would hear other girls talking about it. It was made out to be one of the worst things in the world. And the way that they even spoke of the growing fetus was mm. like, it was a parasite feeding off of the woman's body. And so I developed a fear of pregnancy. And I thought that all being a woman had was just pain. And I didn't understand that all these things 
no matter how painful or difficult they were, were actually gifts. You're right, they are tremendous gifts, but when you're going through it, it's incredibly painful. I mean, any woman going through puberty, especially early, can be a rather traumatic experience for them. <coughs> any any child, male or female. <coughs> Excuse me. It's okay. Any child, male or female, that is going through puberty, it is a rough time for them. Um, and I feel for a lot of kids. I really do because I went through puberty young. I was very much aware of things that were growing and how I was feeling in the world. And a lot of that came down to experiences that I had as a young kid. And it is tough. And me looking at the rest of the world and trying to figure out whether or not I could fit in amongst my social groups and things of that nature. And I was bullied. I was really ridiculed as well. So I can understand on that level. I mean, I'll never understand what it's like to be a woman because I know I'm not one. But I've, I've heard from not just you, but so many other young women that have such traumatic times going through puberty. And it's, it's really, really rough. And they don't necessarily have a great deal of support from their peers. Social media has made it incredibly worse now because they're, they're wrestling with what's happening with their body versus their mind versus societal pressures. And then they're getting all this false information and no one really, they can't really comprehend it all. So how, right. how are you meant to help a child through all that? Right. It doesn't help now that there's a lot of like uh, third wave feminists and like antinatalist um, dogma out there now that's saying like having children is say, it's horrible for your body. It's horrible for your environment. It's horrible for society. You shouldn't do it and you'll be happier without kids. And so it really devalues the ability that women have to create a child with their own body. And even if you don't really want to have children, that's still a gift that you have mm. as to be valued and, and appreciated. And now it's being completely downplayed and you're going through these things throughout a good portion of your life and not really seeing any purpose in it. Yeah. And you're expecting a child to become an adult as a child, and you're pushing all this pressure on them to figure out life super quickly. It's like, hurry up, hurry up your experiences of life. I remember feeling that as a young teenager, and I wanted to, I mean, at the age of, I think it was 13 and 14, I ended up getting in this relationship with a girl. I had no idea about the world of mental health before then. And she exposed me to the world of cutting, the world of depression, the world of all these things that no child should really ever be exposed to. And then I became depressed. I became oh, suicidal. And then my parents freaked out. They had no idea what to do. But in, in contrast to that, imagine a child like yourself going to their parent and saying, I don't feel like I am a girl anymore. Or I don't feel like I am a boy. And the parent's going, well, how do I navigate this? Like the parent doesn't really have much information at their fingertips. So they go to a professional 
for help, but the professional they go to says, oh, you should listen to your child. Your child knows best. But your parent doesn't really necessarily know because they don't want you to be in pain anymore if you're in significant pain and distress. And yet they've got a doctor now saying you should listen to your child. They're trying to tell you that they're in pain and distress. And the, and the only option here is for you to go along with what your child is is wishing and what your child wants. I mean, how does a, how does a parent even rationalize that at all? It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't, but I mean, that's exactly what happened with my parents. They weren't really given any second opinion. This was the path that we had to take, they said. And I think that my parents did the best with what they had, which wasn't very much, unfortunately. I think every parent is trying to do the very best for their child. A vast majority of them are. Some parents are just nuts <laughs> and, and <laughs> believe in certain ideologies and they, they do things uh, that shouldn't be done to any child. Uh, it's and unfortunate. That's really, that's really unfortunate and tragic because it's you tragic. feel the child. Because the child's got no idea. I mean, if a child is like four or five years old and says to their 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 mum or their dad that they feel like they're um, like in in the wrong body, let's say, and the parent goes, "Okay, sure, we're going to start you on hormones. We're gonna we're gonna take you to a gender affirming person that is going to help you navigate through this." I mean, what child really knows that? You you can't. As an adult, you should know better. But a lot of them don't. Instead, they just believe in a ton of lies. And it's really, really sad. It really is. I mean, lies are oftentimes all that these doctors are giving their patients and their families, saying that you have to affirm these feelings, this delusion that your child actually is your daughter and not your son, or your son and not your daughter. It's almost sort of an abuse tactic in how they tell their parents, like it's life or death. There is no other thing. There's nothing else you can do about this. There's heaps that you can do about it, but really they just want more money. It's absolutely like they convince you and the parent of the lie more and more. They only affirm the lie more and more. And it's amazing to me how doctors take the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, and yet they're doing incredible amounts of harm. It's beyond me. And, they, and do they get away with it? Is your doctor going to get away with it? Well, I guess we'll see. Because earlier this year, I filed a lawsuit against them, against every single doctor who got me into these interventions. And also against my entire healthcare provider as well in the hospital where I underwent surgery. Thank God for that. I haven't had any proceedings yet, but um, I'm really excited, a little bit nervous, but I'm, I'm very hopeful. And my motivations in doing that are that, I mean, they, they lied to me. This was fraud. They lied to me and my parents that this treatment would help me. And 
they caused me harm in doing so. And since I've discovered that I've regretted this and I've been having serious complications from it, they haven't been helping me. And I desperately need help. I need care. But it's also that I, I want to create a, a precedent for people who have been through these treatments and back for people who regret these treatments and feel trapped by them, who have been harmed, who have been harmed physically and psychologically by these treatments to be get, to get justice for themselves as well. Which I think is really incredible. The fact that you're still really young, you're still 18 years old. And it's as if like you've been forced to become almost 30 years old straight away. It's amazing to me how you you articulate yourself really, really well. And you actually are a very, very smart woman. You're very smart. Smarter than me in many, many ways, to be honest with you. Like when I when I was reading a lot of the things you were saying, I'm like, far out. I can't even articulate myself in this manner. <laughs> it's like the English language has gone well beyond me in, in some respect. <laughs> I was the one that did advanced English in high school. <laughs> so, I mean, congratulations to you, honestly. Thank you. But uh, you've testified, I guess, before Congress. Is that correct? Um, Not yet. Not yet. But I have yeah. testified um, locally um, in state legislature. And what's that experience like? Um. It's gotten easier over the past year. I was very nervous when I first started, but I don't think I've ever not wanted to do it throughout the whole experience. I mean, it's not something that I ever thought that I would be doing, but it's it's really exciting stuff. I really enjoy doing it. I like I like writing my speeches and then presenting presenting them and seeing my work pay off and also just knowing that I mean, I'll be helping at least one kid out there. Mm -hmm. Can I take you back a little bit to when you were 14 or 15, when you chose to have your breast removed? Am, am I able to ask you what was going through your mind when that decision was made and then after they were removed? Yeah, so I had a few motivations in undergoing the mastectomy. The main one being that now that I was well into my transition, I was on hormones for a few years, and now I looked and sounded like a boy and everybody knew me as one, I wanted the rest of my body to reflect that. I wasn't really interested in having a sex reassignment because I knew then that that would be too primitive of a surgery for me to undergo. and. I was satisfied with what I had, but I didn't want to have breasts anymore. I wanted to be able to, to take off my shirt just like any other boy. And I also wanted to stop using my binder, which my binders were these compression devices that I wore every day that they were kind of, they were in a shape similar to like a tank top, but in the chest area, it was a compression garment that was designed to flatten the appearance of my breasts. But it wasn't perfect. 
I, I looked like I had a flat chest when I wore t-shirts over it, but it was still kind of awkward and unnaturally flat looking. And it was also very uncomfortable. I mean, um, I live in central California and it gets really hot here. Um, about during like the warmer season, it, it can get anywhere from like 95 to uh, like 115 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know how much that is in Celsius, but it's hot. <laughs> yeah, awfully hot. <laughs> and I would wear this thing every day for roughly about like eight to 12 hours a day because I had, I had eight hours, our school days. And, um, basically whenever I went out of the house, whenever I like went grocery shopping, clothes shopping, camping, seeing family, having guests over at my house, working out, swimming, doing any sort of physical activity because I didn't want my breasts to be visible. And as comforting as it was that they weren't visible, I hated wearing this thing every day. It just wasn't pleasant. And another reason why I had the surgery that wasn't really obvious to me at the time and until well after I stopped transitioning was that I actually had trauma um, that was of the sexual sort. Um, in my eighth grade year, I got bullied by other students for transitioning because, I mean, it's middle school. We're all, we're all barely hitting puberty. We're all in our tweens and teens and yeah. we got to take out those emotions somehow, right? Yep. <laughs> People aren't very nice at that age. Nope. And it was kind of to be expected. But one day, um, this particular boy who had been harassing me throughout, throughout the school year went too far and he actually sexually assaulted me. He, um, he walked up to me in the middle of a classroom and he looked me in the eyes and he squeezed my breasts. And I was already transitioning at this point in time. So it really just made me very conscious of this area of my body that I already didn't like very much. And I was also in a classroom that was very crowded. There are a lot of other students in there and also the teacher, but nobody seemed to notice or care. And those things made it feel like how I felt wasn't important. And because I was trying to be a boy now, I had to just man up and be tough about it and not complain about it because that was what I was supposed to do. And I couldn't trust that anybody was going to help me because there were girls telling me that this boy would never hurt me. I mean, he wasn't always very nice, but there's, he would never actually touch me. He wouldn't actually harm me in any way. And I felt like my trust with other girls was really broken because of that, because it wasn't true. I trusted their judgment and I, the public school system just sucks. I mean, incidents like this don't really get very harsh of a punishment as they should. 
And I knew that if I told like a teacher about it, if I told the office about it, the kid would probably just receive like a two day suspension or something and then come back and it could make the situation worse. And I didn't want to go through that. So I just kept it to myself. And because I was in the mentality of, well, I'm a boy, so I should just be, I should just act like a boy, right? Because boys will be boys. By thinking like that, I wasn't really giving myself an opportunity to process how it was really affecting me. And I didn't even recognize it as an incident of sexual assault for a while. I'm sorry that that actually happened to you. And I'm sorry that you weren't able to feel confident or or really able to speak up about it. So that incident was, I guess, a catalyst in a way for you having the double vasectomy? Yes. That was when I started binding, actually. Wow. That was when I started to start hiding my breasts because I didn't want that to happen ever again. I had to defend myself some way. So you wearing this binder, did that hurt you every single day? You wearing it? Um, I mean, most of the discomfort from wearing it was mostly because of the excess body heat and like the, the fabric like sticking to my skin. But it wasn't really causing me pain per se. I mean, other people... I, I I read about and listened to other people talking about their experience by binding, and a lot of them said that they um, they struggled to find like an appropriate sized one, or they're using like tape to do it, and they got injuries from that, or f- even from using like a regular binder, they were getting pains in their breasts, in the middle of their chest, in the rib cage, in their upper back. And I never experienced any of that. So I just thought it was okay. But it actually caused my ribs to flare out a little bit. And to this day, um, it's been about three or so years since I last wore one. And those, that, um, those deformities are still just ever so slightly visible. And it's not too bad. And it doesn't cause me any pain, but it's just one of the many reminders I have of what happened. What goes through your mind today when you look at your your chest area, seeing those scars? I mean, it's not really the scars that bother me so much as it is the the skin grafts that they used as part of the surgery. Um, the incision they chose for me was um, the double mastectomy. It's called the double mastectomy with, um, with nipple grafts, meaning that they, um, they actually remove and relocate the areolas onto a different area of the chest to make it look like it's in a more masculine position after they take out the breast tissue. And um, they haven't really fully healed. And I'd say that the healing has even started to regress. And I've started having complications from that. Because now, um, as of almost a year ago, 
they started to leak clear fluid and nothing I've done has really cleared it up. And I have to wear bandages every day because of this. Um, whether I'm just going through my day or going to sleep, I have to prevent it from getting on my, um, my clothing and on my bedding. And I don't know what this is because I've, I've tried to go back to my doctor. I've tried to go back to my surgeon and tell them that not only that I regretted this, this treatment and that I feel like I shouldn't have been allowed to go through it at the age that it was, but also that I'm experiencing these really serious complications. And he was very dismissive of my concerns and actually gave me advice that, um, well, it gave me a skin infection, first of all, and it didn't address the problem that I'm having. And I still don't know what's going on with this area of my body. I've never really seen or heard of anything like this before. Have you tried to go to a new doctor at all? I mean, as long as I'm with Kaiser Permanente, this is kind of the only treatment that I can expect, really. I'm going to try to get another appointment with a different doctor who isn't a surgeon just to maybe do like a culturing of the fluid to figure out what, what it is and what's going on with the skin there. But I don't really expect any treatment or anything to resolve as long as I'm with them. And because they're not only my healthcare provider, they're also my insurance. So they're not going to cover anything if I go outside of my network. Are you comfortable with talking about the the level of costs involved with things like this? Yeah. So how much do you reckon like the level of expenses that would have no doubt been occurred through all of this would have been extreme, right? Um I mean here in the states the way it works is that you can choose to stay under your parents insurance plan up until you're about 25 or 26 years old. So I would have been in the clear for, uh, for quite a few years. But um, that being said, because I was under my parents' insurance, they were the ones who were mostly handling this. And so I don't really have any specifics on how much this costs. And it was, by California state law, required to be covered by insurance anyways. So the only thing that we really had to pay for was like co-pays for um, the appointments, and for the surgeries, which were, I think, between like 50 to $100 each. So I'm not sort of familiar with the insurance system in the US, um, but they pretty much cover everything? Yeah. Wow. Okay. From the testosterone, the blockers, to the, um, the surgery. Wow. And even the topical estrogen treatment that I was prescribed. I've heard some, I guess, horror instances regarding the, the healthcare system in the US and insurance and all that stuff. So I was just very curious in that respect, especially for California too, being a very blue state at the moment with Gavin Newsom, but that's another story. Um, but it's horrific. 
It really it's is. terrific. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what was the catalyst for you actually deciding to speak out about this? Because it's no easy thing to do, getting vulnerable and sharing what's happened to you. Um, I think part of it was the response that I got from the trans community just for speaking out about my experience. At first, I gave into the pressure to stop speaking up about it for a while because I didn't really, I didn't want to keep being harassed and hearing things like you're harming us by talking about your experience or you're just making everybody uncomfortable and your experience is not important. Um, and also um, having interacted with other detransitioned people and people who regretted their, their transitions. Knowing that there's other people out there like this who have been through transition and back and came out of it with great harm done to their bodies and minds. I mean, you just, I couldn't stay quiet about it. I, most of the people, the detransitioners that I was speaking to at the time were adults. They were, most of them had gone through the treatment as adults and detransitioned as adults. But I knew there had to be at least one other kid out there who's been through the ringer, just like I have. But I knew they weren't speaking up because of the way that the trans community reacted to me, just talking about my own regret and my own pain. And if they couldn't find their own voice, then somebody else has to. And I decided that I'm going to take that responsibility upon myself. And I hope that I can encourage other people who are in the situation to start speaking up for themselves as well. And um, so far, there's been quite a few people who have come to me talking about their own experiences of, of transitioning and detransitioning and being able to find the courage to start speaking out publicly the way I did. And it took a while until that started happening. And I didn't start doing it myself immediately after I stopped transitioning. Um, when I stopped transitioning, I was barely into my senior year and it's really severely affected my social life and my school performance. And I just wasn't in a good situation. And I knew that I wouldn't really be in the state to, to start speaking about it, knowing that what kind of scrutiny was going to come. But as soon as I was out of school, and um, I started making more friends and was, was regaining my confidence in myself and felt like I could start speaking up. Because, I mean, I don't really think that anybody is really ready to take on something like this, but it had to happen for me at some point. And I decided I would start small at first with my own personal social media and then... I would create a Twitter account that I would use just to talk about my story. And I didn't really expect much out of it. I just wanted to get my story out there and um, hope that 
they could reach somebody. And then I started having a bunch of parents reaching out to me, telling me their stories of their own children. And then I actually had a few reporters reach out to me and that really helped to, to boost my story. And then eventually I had a nonprofit group run by some parents telling me that, um, they were just asking me if I would be comfortable with, uh, writing, uh, my own testimony and having them read it aloud in a, in a hearing for state legislature. And eventually it turned out that that state wouldn't allow anybody to speak if they were not in person. So they asked me if I would be able to come out and do it myself. And I was still 17 at the time. I was still a minor. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't legally an adult yet. And I had to get my parents to consent to that. And they were very, they were very, um, what's the word here? They were very cautious. Yeah. They're like, nope, you're, you're our kid and we want you to be safe. And I hadn't really been that far away from them or for that long yeah. in my life up until that point. So naturally they were going to be very protective of me. It did take some convincing for them to, to say yes to it because I think they realized like, advocating for myself might be the only way that I'm able to get out of the situation. And I'm very thankful that said yes, because it's, it's really been life-changing. It's really helped me to develop as a person and to come to terms with what happened to me, because it's still something that affects me day to day. And it's still something that brings me a great deal of pain, but now that I can use that pain to, to help other people, it's, it's been a wonderful experience. Well, you certainly inspired me in many, many ways. And I love your commentary on all of this. And I have a huge level of appreciation and respect for you being willing and courageous enough to actually speak out in the way that you are. Because despite all the blowback, despite all the criticism that you are receiving, you are still standing strong and firm. And I think that is an admirable thing to do and more people should do the exact same thing. Chloe, I am mindful of your time and I do want to be respectful of it. I've got a couple more questions for you, if that's okay with you. Um, That is, uh, if you have to run or something like that, but... um, I'm all right. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, but what is, let me ask you this question. Do you know how many people, like what are the stats on detransitioners at the moment? Because the mainstream media seem to be getting it really wrong. We have no idea. Mm. I mean, people within the community and these trans activists and these left-wing politicians and media outlets often claim that detransition rates are clinically not significant that it happens in less than one or two percent of these patients and it seems to come from a single study that was done by jack turbin who is a researcher and trans activist and um 
This study was a survey of people who had detransitioned due to feeling like they had some sort of social pressure in their life that couldn't allow them to transition or they were having health issues from medically transitioning. But these people still identified as transgender. Mm. This is a cohort of people that does not represent me. They are not detransitioners. And yet this study being done on on detransition is being used to nullify the experiences of people who detransition because they regret it, because they either learn to live with their dysphoria or that this treatment either worsened or did not treat their dysphoria. I mean, I, I saw the the New York Times sort of have a massive attack on you very much that was re- amazing. recently. You're on the front page of the New York Times and I I couldn't believe it. Like that a mainstream media outlet, the second largest in the US, arguably the world, has decided to put out a hit piece on you and attack your story and try and discredit and try and disprove your story, your experience, and the experience of so many others. Unbelievable. I'm- I mean, it really goes to show just how low these people are willing to go that Man. they will attack a teenage trauma survivor over an ideology. The beautiful thing about it, though, is that in the title, they finally admitted that they act, that I actually underwent this surgery and that this actually happens to kids. If this was published a year ago, they wouldn't do that. They would have said that I alleged to have the surgery. That it was possibility that I was lying about actually going under these interventions as a, as a child. I think the tide's starting to turn even if it's just slowly, because just a year ago, the argument was this never happens. This Mm. never happens to people under the age of 18. Oh, but when it does, it's good. It's a good thing. And if they regret it, no, no, they didn't. That didn't happen. It's a very circular argument. And I'm glad to see that it's starting to, to go. Does it make you angry that they stoop that low at all? I mean, it doesn't really affect me when people speak this way of me because, I mean, I've gotten used to it, frankly. If anything, it's more than a, nothing more than just a nuisance. But they included other detransitioners in this, saying that there are only 10 of us speaking out on this issue that were a minority of a minority that our experiences don't matter. Which the funny thing about that is, since they're on the left, you would think that they would care about the fringe experience, Mm -hmm. about the smallest minority. But apparently because it goes against their ideology, they just can't bring themselves to do that. It goes against the narrative. They can't do that. Yeah, we can't. 
upset or even offends the other minority group that seems to have the loudest voice at the moment. So God forbid that we do that. Yeah, we won't get funding for that. (laughs) Yeah. To me, it's just, it's bonkers. It goes well beyond my level of comprehension. And I've said many times, it makes my head hurt. (laughs) It does. At the level of trying to understand how these people think, some people are just, I mean, There is a particular line in that article that was like, let me find it. I'm going to, I'm going to look for it on my phone right now. Please do. It was. (laughs) I think I know. It was something along the lines of like her testimony during these hearings brings Republican lawmakers to tears. Mm. Like it's some sort of performance art. Like it's not real almost, like it's exaggerated, but it's not. Mm. This is just my account of what happened to me. And it's not just the Republicans who shed tears over this. It's everybody in the room. And those who aren't crying, they're holding their heads down in shame. Because they know that this is wrong. Everybody knows that this is wrong. This is not a matter of politics or party lines. It's an apolitical issue. But the left has managed to make it into a political issue. I cried when I heard your story the first time. And I've admitted to that. I mean, I was on my run listening to your story. And when you said that, how was I supposed to know? And there was silence after that. I just, tears. I'm not, I'm not kidding. I couldn't see when I was running because it was dark and and the tears are just covering my eyes. And I'm just like, this poor, poor young girl, this kind of stuff should not happen to anyone. But yet it is happening, the level of butchery. And that encouraged me more and more to want to speak out as well. So I thank you for going on Dr. Peterson's show and secondly, for speaking out about all this, because it's encouraged me, it's encouraged so many other people, even though it is really horrific to actually hear. And you're right, those that don't cry, they've got no heart. They really have got no heart. They're so desensitized to a person, a human being that was butchered and mutilated for what reason? for an agenda, an ideology that has become so mainstream, so political, it's just barbaric. Is There's no really other way to describe it. It's horrific. It really is. So I wanted to ask you two quick final questions for you, Chloe, wrapping this all up. What's on the horizon for you. You're 18 years old. You're doing a lot of speaking. You're helping to uh, pass all these bans in legislatures, bodies, which is amazing. What's on the, the future for you? Do you have any ambitions, any goals in mind? Yeah, I hope that in the end, these, tr- these treatments, these procedures were never performed on a child ever again, because it's never appropriate to mess with the development of a perfectly healthy child. 
for the sake of an agenda. Mm. And I think in general, the affirmative care model needs to be revised because it's very much a one size fits all treatment. If you feel this way about your body, about yourself, okay, we're not going to question that. You are actually the opposite sex. You are what you claim to be. And we can help you to become your true self. It really doesn't work out that way. And most of these people, both the adults and the children, they have serious trauma and psychiatric issues that are not being dealt with as they need to be. And these treatments almost always worsen them. But I think once this stops being performed on children and once the model of care is revised for these patients, I might continue um, my activism in different subjects. I'm not exactly sure what yet, but I think over the years I've become pretty family oriented and I'm very concerned about family and about children, especially in today's world. And even once ending childhood transition and the transition of the unnecessary transitioning of vulnerable adult patients is going to be a huge step, but there's still going to be a lot in the world that we have to fight for, especially having to do with our kids with supporting families and mothers and fathers. Because we've really devalued all that in recent decades and it's destroying our world from the inside out. Um, But I've also kind of been on the artistic side from a very young age. Um, I have a bunch of notebooks and papers just stashed in my closet and in the office of my house of all the drawings I've made over the years. And um, I think, you know, I've always liked doing stuff like uh, like character design and illustration. I, as a kid, I wanted to like make my own comics, maybe my, my own like, uh, like cartoon series. But in recent years, um, I've also taken up a fit, um, an interest in fashion. Um, the way that I presented myself um, has been a pretty big part of my recovery from transitioning. And I think it's an art form. I think it absolutely is. And one day I plan to actually start a brand of my own and selling my own clothes, maybe shoes and accessories. And I haven't really figured that out yet. It's something that's very, very much a work in progress, but um, I'm really excited about it. And there's also a lot of things, a lot of other things that I have an interest in, but it's just really overwhelming because I'm, I'm still young. There's still so many possibilities. There's so many paths that I can go down. I, I want to, I really want to do it all, but it's also like, I get worried because 
life is so short. Like how, how can I fit this all into such a packed schedule? Let, let me encourage you because I'm 26 and I was very much like you wanted to do so many things, but don't forget to slow down a little bit. Even though life is short, you have time. <laughs> you have time. I do my best. To be able to do the things that you want to do. But right now, enjoy what you have at your fingertips. That's important. Chloe, I want to ask you my final question. What do you love the most about yourself and your story? Um... It's a very, uh, it's kind of a sensitive question because lately I've been in kind of a rut with my, um, with my perception of myself, with my self-esteem. And I guess I haven't really been giving myself enough credit for what I'm doing, but I think one of the things that kept me surviving through my transition and detransitioning up until this point was... Just having my own hopes and dreams getting me through it all. And I also have a pretty active imagination, which sometimes uh, has its cons and gets in the way of my productivity and um, my emotions. But it also makes it so that I can express myself easily through, through artistic means or through writing and through speech. And it's something that I've become really proud of, I think. Well, I can relate to the artistic side in a little bit and creativity and the brain going crazy and it can get in the way of the emotions. My brain is always Always <laughs> hardly ever switches off, which is a pain in the neck from time to time, but it's the way it's the way you are. And I, I just want to say thank you again, Chloe, for giving me all this time and for sharing vulnerably with me and for just being who you are and being able to live in your authentic self now, despite all the craziness that does go on in life and for all your activism because I'm here supporting you as best I possibly can and so many other people are behind you as well and they love you. So thank you so much, Chloe, for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you very much. You're very kind and I appreciate you giving me this platform and for having this conversation for me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>